Hello, Alabaster Jar listeners. Serene here. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Before we jump into this week's conversation, I want to invite you to join us for an upcoming special event. On Friday, October 22nd, the Center for Women in Leadership, a division of Northern Seminary, will be hosting Tove for Women. Tove for Women is a unique one-day event centered on Dr. Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's book, A Church Called Tove. Tove is a Hebrew word meaning goodness. In a world that is long denied, ignored, or flat-out rejected the voices of women, this important conversation will help us shape a future where the contributions of women are known and celebrated. You can join us in person or online. Check out the link in the podcast description for more information and to register. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our hosts, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Beth Felker-Jones, sit down for a conversation about the Twilight series, sexuality, embodiment, and the resurrection. If you enjoy these weekly conversations, be sure to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Beth, I am so glad to be able to talk with you this morning uh, as we, um, I don't know when our listeners are going to pick this up, but it's bright and early on a Friday morning as you and I are talking. I've had my coffee. Have you had your coffee already today or... I'm in the middle of a Coke, which is my coffee. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I can only do about two cups in the morning. I am not an all-day coffee drinker. Are you an all-day Coke drinker? I have to cut off caffeine about lunchtime. So yeah. um, I usually get a couple in before then. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's it's. I've got to have kind of a jump start of the day. Yeah. But anyway, I'm so glad we're able to talk. Um, Beth and I have known each other for a long time. Has it been maybe 15 years or more? Something That's like that. That's about right, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, one of the first um, first things I knew about you was what a wonderful writer you were. This was way back when you joined the Wheaton College faculty, and I was just a, had been there a few years. And there was this show that had come on, or maybe it was a, a book series, Twilight book series turned into a movie series and the movies yes. are just out on Netflix. So uh, it may be getting a kind of uh, return among Netflix watching teenagers. Yes. A, a second life, so to speak. I don't know if that's uh, kosher to say uh, when you're talking about <laughs> vampires. I've not read the series. So true confession there. Haven't seen the videos, but I do remember uh, your um, concerns about some of the ways in which the relationship of men and women and vampires <laughs> uh, were men, portrayed. Women, vampires, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't have zombies yet, but I'm sure that'll come. Um, but uh, the just how uh, I do remember that uh, some Christians uh, were impressed by the storyline of the book, but you raised some real concerns about that. Can you just kind of summarize the storyline for the uh, for the listeners and then highlight some of the concerns that you have with the series? 
Yeah. So this was wildly popular. Um, uh, and I don't, I think the, the movies have been up on the Netflix ratings too. Uh, the basic story of Twilight is that a, a teenage girl uh, falls in love with an immortal vampire and uh, she uh, wants him to make her a vampire so she can live with him forever. Uh, he is super reluctant to do so because he's a vampire and that's not really the best life, right? Um, he has so, a, is a vampire with a conscience then it sounds a like. A vampire huh? with a conscience. In <laughs> fact, he and his family are vegetarian vampires. Mm. Uh, they only eat wild game. So uh, a, a pretty big conscience. Um, a lot of Christians uh, got excited about the story uh, because uh, also uh, there was no premarital sex. That was a, a theme. Um, uh, and that was, again, his deal. Part of his conscience uh, was that uh, he would not sleep with the heroine uh, until they got married. Um, other Christians were more worried about it because of the vampire thing. Uh, my own worries were were less about a story about mythical creatures, and uh, again, as you said, more about how re relationships uh, were depicted. Uh, the author of Twilight Meyer uh, is a Mormon, uh, and I think uh, the ideas about uh, waiting for marriage uh, uh, there in Mormon culture are very similar to what a lot of evangelical Christians uh, believe, right? So uh, uh, Christians probably resonated with that idea of having trouble waiting uh, for marriage. Well, yeah. So as you've summarized uh, the story, uh, can you, what was it that attracted the young, the young woman to this uh, vampire? And uh, what was troubling to you about their relationship? I think uh, it was a really attractive story because uh, the idea of desire that is not fulfilled, right, uh, gets a lot of traction. Um, and in so many contemporary stories, there is no waiting, there is no unfulfilled desire. So uh, the story from a Mormon author, you know, touched on that kind of nerve of. Um, uh, wanting something that that you cannot have. Um, I was really concerned about the way gender roles were portrayed. Um, the vampire with a conscience, as, as lovely as his conscience uh, was, uh, was for the young heroine, the whole center of her world. Right? She, she became uh, about nothing but him. And I, I remember vividly at, at one point, her mother described her as a satellite orbiting around him. Um, oh and yeah. uh, that seemed that seemed like a, a fair description and a concern I think a lot of mothers might have if, if a teenage daughter is falling for somebody. Um, he also has this super strength. He's a he's kind of a superhero, right? He's not a regular boy. He's um, an immortal, untouchable boy who plays the piano beautifully because he doesn't need to sleep. And you know, he's just he's just amazing. Um, at the risk of spoiling the story for for those who might be interested, uh, they do eventually get married um, and. Uh, 
on their wedding night, she uh, comes out bruised and battered because he's an immortal vampire and she's a weak human. Um, that is uh, a deep concern, right? And there were a lot of features of this relationship that mirrors mirror abusive relationships in real life. Uh, he watches her. He uh, takes the spark plugs maybe out of her car so she can't go visit another boy. Uh, it's it's a stocky kind of relationship and a controlling kind of relationship. And that that is uh, when you're uh, a teenage girl, uh, you might think the attention is lovely. Um, you might feel special because of that. Uh, but yeah, that visual of the morning after their wedding night, bruised and battered, uh, really, uh, that's, a, that's a reality that uh, some women today, even in the church, face. And to have it um, glamorized, if you will. Romanticized, yeah. Romanticized, yeah. Um, as though this is what love looks like, uh, is so damaging, especially because we've got uh, kids who are um, reading this yeah, second generation almost uh, reading this and forming their thoughts. Uh, if if the that relationship is not one to follow, what might be uh, a good relationship model to follow? And maybe you even see some in literature. Mm, good relationships in literature. That's that's a fun question. You know, there's an old joke that says it's impossible to write an interesting novel about a happy marriage um, <laughs> because the conflict comes comes in the unhappiness. Uh, I I'm a huge fan of Stegner's Crossing to Safety, which is a a gorgeous novel about a pair of couples who are are good friends and face. Um, problems as, as we all do, uh, but uh, get through life together, uh, not perfectly, but but supporting each other in, in ways that uh, are much more real than the idea of a, a vampire immortal hero, right? Um, that's a long literary novel. It's probably not going to appeal to um, maybe people who first get into reading through a twilight. But, you know, I think uh, we all know and need um, models of healthy relationships um, that come from our real lives. And I, I think everybody knows beautiful marriages, um, healthy long-term marriages where you see partners lifting each other up and helping each other not to be satellites of each other, um, but to be pointed towards Jesus. And I really think that's that's the point, right? Uh, every good relationship, including a romantic one, uh, is supposed to point the other towards Jesus uh, and not become a kind of self-involved uh, thing about, about the other person. So I... I love to look for healthy relationships in your local church. I think that's a, a great place to look. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the Twilight uh, series certainly highlighted um, the whole issue of sexuality. And that's something that you have focused on quite a bit. You have a terrific little book that I would recommend to just about, I mean, every pastor, youth pastor, and parent that talks about what uh, what God intended uh, as God created sex and sexu sexuality, that we are uh, sexual beings. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that recent book, and then I'm going to get in, tie that uh, to resurrection, 
which is something I think not a lot of people would necessarily make that connection, but, uh, but it's a really important one. But first, tell us a little bit about this uh, book that, uh, is it, uh, what, what's faithful, the title? Uh, faithful, A Theology of Sex, and it's now available as a course on seminary now by the same title. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, here at Northern Seminary. So yes, we do want people to check out Seminary Now and check out that that series. So I wrote this book at the pleading of another mutual friend of ours, Jean Green, uh, who was doing a little series of books called Ordinary Theology, uh, looking at topics that that matter to our ordinary lives in theological ways. Uh, and I always joked with Jean that I only would do this for him because I, I didn't set out to write a book about sex. Um, it is something, though, that really matters, right? And and that is why I was willing to write it and why it's something I will teach and, and talk about. Um, theology matters on the ground in the in the most ordinary ways and human beings are sexual creatures and um, navigating this stuff as Christians uh, with love and grace is important. So um, my goal in the book was really just to set out a positive theology of sexuality. Right now in the church we spend a lot of time arguing about uh, what we can and can't do and what does and doesn't count uh, as uh, a marriage and so on and so forth. And I really felt like we had forgotten some of the basics, right? Like why, why sex exists, why it matters, why it's a good thing, a gift from God. Uh, and so I really wanted to avoid in the book uh, a lot of the contentious issues and, and just talk about a healthy vision of sexuality. And my thesis there is just uh, that faithful Christian marriage is meant to mirror the faithfulness of God. Uh, it's meant to be a kind of picture of God's faithfulness to his people, a picture in the world that we can see. Um, and in that picture of faithfulness, there's there's a great deal of beauty and joy. And uh, yeah, God is with us. Uh, sex is for God, right? Um, that's kind of a funny thing to say, but uh, all things are for God, you know, pointed to and for him, um, including the most earthy realities of our lives. And, you know, I tend to think that, um, at least in the United States, um, all this conversation about sex and sexuality gets all gnarled up with our ideas of body. And mm -hmm. I think that's where then you, you think about resurrection and the resurrection of the body, that crucial belief that Christians hold. And it connects back with our bodies, which are male and female. Talk a little bit about why resurrection is, is so important as we think about our sexual identity. Yeah. Uh, interest in resurrection and the resurrection of the body was really my first theological interest. Um, and it was that interest that eventually led to teaching classes about sexual ethics or, or writing a book like Faithful. Um, when I was doing my graduate work, uh, what I kept noticing what was most new for me was how important the body is to Christian doctrine sort of across the board. That's not something I had noticed beforehand or, or particularly been taught beforehand, right? But we have the body there in the incarnation. We have it in the goodness of creation. Um, and we have it at the end uh, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So uh, I have wanted to think about our bodies right now um, and the things we do in the body, including our sexual lives, through the lens of the final resurrection. 
because, because we are a kingdom people, God's good final intentions for all things are meant to shape us in the here and now. And so if at the end of the day, we're meant to continue to be embodied creatures and to continue to give praise to God as embodied creatures, um, then that gives us uh, a kind of foretaste of how we're supposed to be living uh, right here and right now. Uh, one of the kind of fun and interesting debates in the Christian tradition about the resurrection has to do with which characteristics of the body as we know it now uh, might be preserved into the future resurrection. Um, and uh, as I was working with Augustine, uh, the late fourth century North African theologian, uh, Augustine of Hippo, uh, I uh, resonated with his insistence um, that uh, maleness and femaleness continue into the resurrection because they're God's good intention for us, right? Um, there were those uh, at his time and there are those in our time uh, who suggest that the particularities of sex and of gender are erased in resurrection, uh, that they're kind of dissolved out. Um, and there were particularly in the ancient world people who said there will be women in the resurrection. Women are a problem. <laughs> and against that, Augustine says, basically God made women um, and God's going to redeem women. Uh, that struck me as surely right, right? Uh, despite the world's misogyny, it is the case that God made me and plans to redeem me um, and has a good future uh, for me, body and soul, and for all of us, body and soul. So, you know, creation is a more traditional way of thinking about uh, the body, um, and it absolutely matters for that thinking. Um, but I think resurrection matters even more. That's uh, creation is the beginning, right? Resurrection is the end. Um, it goes beyond even the beauties of creation uh, into uh, the glories right, of the new heavens and the new earth. What What do you think? It's, it is fascinating to me to imagine this kind of well, this creature that is sort of quote unquote sexless in the resurrection, mm -hmm. is that really what people were imagining or were they imagining something else? This is, you know, Augustine's interlocutors or you mentioned some people today that I guess what I'm getting at is where, where are the uh, big problems when we don't think about resurrection as male and female? and female. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is sort of mystery territory, right? I don't, I don't want to get too dogmatic a, about any of it. But I think, you know, the most basic theological claim here is that creation and new creation are in continuity with one another. Um, God isn't going to destroy and wipe out everything God has done. Um, God is going to redeem it and uh, finish his good work therein. And so if you declare some part of creation uh, absent from new creation, you're basically denying that it's God's good work, right? And if you're a woman and um, the world, the sinful world tends to deny all the time that you are God's good work, um, that is especially not good news. Right? So the continuity of creation and new creation is a really important uh, theological principle there. Yeah, I think people have imagined a variety of things. Um, uh, there are contemporary theologians who, especially pressing on ideas of gender fluidity, kind of imagined um, a genderless future. Uh, you know, I think our culture's uh, current 
conversation about gender fluidity uh, points at some really feel, real problems with how we've thought about maleness and femaleness. It, it challenges really stereotypical uh, uh, versions of maleness and femaleness, and, and you know it's, it's pointing at a real problem there. But end of the day, I think what people need to hear is that they're, they're good, they're created good, their bodies are good. Um, God loves them, God has good intentions for them. So, yeah, um, and when we forget that we're embodied creatures, we, we kind of can fall into what was an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, where it, the thing that really matters is the uh, spiritual world or the world of the mind and the body doesn't matter at all. And that seems to me to lead to a lot of, a lot of problems. Indeed. And, you know, even though the ancient church is really clear in its rejection of Gnosticism, uh, and that rejection is even there sort of incipient in the New Testament, um, uh, Western culture, at least, has remained tempted by Gnosticism throughout the centuries and, and continues to be so tempted. This kind of the body doesn't matter. The real me is the inner me um, uh, isn't consistent with the fact that God created all of it and made it good. You connect, um, you've mentioned it uh, earlier, uh, you connect this idea of resurrection of the body also with uh, incarnation, with Jesus's incarnation. Um, and the you talk about in your book, which is a fabulous one, Marks of His Wounds, great book. Um, you talk about how Jesus has particularity, born, you know, in the what becomes the first century named after him, you know, <laughs> and dated based on his life. Uh, he was male. He was a Jewish male. Um, so there's a particularity there. And I think sometimes as a woman, I feel like, well, that particularity uh, puts a distance between us because I'm not male. So talk a little bit about body and particularity and how actually that also is good news for us knowing about particularity and then the kind of the universal reality of being embodied yeah this question about how jesus's particularity connects to particularities that aren't the same as his right um has been a kind of live one in contemporary theology for the last i don't know 60 years maybe a little less than that um and yeah, the the question is, it's most classically put, uh, comes from Rosemary, Rosemary Redford Ruther, uh, can a male savior save women, right? Um, and different theologians have wrestled with that in different ways. What I want to argue is something like this. Uh, we all have particularities, and all of our particularities are met in the particularity of Jesus. So it's not his male first century-ness, right, uh, that I have to match uh, to be human like he is human, but it's his locatedness, his contextualness. So my female 21st century-ness uh, and my other particularities um, are loved and met in the incarnation. Um, some people have uh, suggested, again, that the erasure of particularity has to be the way to uh, to get us all to attach to Jesus, even perhaps the erasure of his particularity, right? Uh, 
But uh, as history has shown, uh, that erasure uh, leads to an anti-Semitism uh, and to uh, various other kinds of uh, evils that, that come with that. Um, so I think the basic principle here is particularity is good. God made it, God loves it, right? Um, and uh, it's not Jesus's maleness uh, that uh, makes him human. Uh, it's his particularity. Yes, across that. The one other uh, point that I'd love to have you talk about um, is, and I'll, I'll quote from, uh, uh, read from a sentence in your, uh, in your book, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body is about the holiness of the body of Christ. Can you talk just a little bit about that? And that's, that sounds sacramental too. So please uh, talk a little bit about maybe the Lord's Supper and baptism mm. as ways that we live into the reality that the resurrection of the body is about the holiness of the body mm -hmm. of Christ. It is sacramental and it's also me being uh, very Wesleyan, right? Uh, in thinking about holiness uh, as God's good intention for us, that we should be holy as God is holy. Um, I think in our semi-Gnostic worldviews, we sometimes think holiness has to be something which is um, all on the inside, all spiritual. Uh, but uh, we read so often in scripture of the holiness of the body, right? Uh, to present your members as instruments of righteousness, right? Uh, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? Our, our bodies are involved in the holiness of our lives. And certainly the sacramental life of the church is a key way that we affirm that, but also a key way that that actually happens, uh, a way that that holiness is nurtured. Uh, as we are baptized into the body of Christ, right, uh, and into his death and resurrection, uh, a real change happens, right, uh, a change in which we are knit together with Christ and we become something new. And as we are fed continuously at the table, right, we are nurtured uh, and we continue to grow uh, in holiness uh, in likeness unto Christ, which is the same thing as holiness. Um, and we we receive what we need for the journey, right? And we receive it body and soul. Uh, the sacrament is food for body and soul, or the table is. Well, and you just said something uh, pretty amazing and almost an offhand way that holiness is like becoming like Christ. You know, it's kind of the same thing. And I had been thinking as we talk about body and as we talk about female body and we mention the word holiness, the actually the word that comes to my mind is shame. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. and I feel like that, that is often the message that the church and the wider society, but even in the church, that the, the female body is a body of shame. It's not life giving. It doesn't receive the kind of life giving, um, holiness options hmm. uh, of becoming conformed to the image of the sun. Uh, it's much more, don't do this, do that. You lead men astray, be moral. You know, how do we, how do we address that yeah. falseness? So much of that. And I think it's so deeply ingrained in most of us, at least, that probably addressing it is a lifelong project of discipleship and a lifelong need for the church uh, to reach towards. In uh, as much as we've done that, though, I think it's just really important to say we've gotten it wrong, right? Um, and we've gotten the scriptures wrong. 
um, look at the body of Mary, right? Uh, who is the, the very mother of God. Uh, look at the bodies of uh, all the women who follow Jesus, right? And present themselves to him as, as instruments of righteousness. Um, there's a, a story about uh, an early Christian martyr, Blandina, which I, I tell in the resurrection book. And um, uh, I love it because it's about female bodies uh, corresponding to Jesus's body. So the, the story is just that as she was martyred, uh, uh, her arms stretched out uh, as Jesus on the cross, people saw in her Jesus, right? Um, and that happens all the time. People see in in women Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think we need a deep a deep battle against the shame, uh, which which has been so ingrained in so many of us. We need to be told that our bodies are good and that God loves them and that God has good purposes for them. Oh, absolutely. And I think what happens is instead, so many women in Scripture. Are, are deemed sexually immoral. And so the only value they seem to bring is this idea that once saved, the Lord can even cleanse them. We don't forgive them, <laughs> so we keep talking about it, but, uh, but the Lord can even forgive them. And so many of these women are not at all immorally, uh, they're, they're not immoral, the Samaritan woman, not immoral, Bathsheba, not called immoral. Neither of them are called immoral on the pages of the Bible. And yet uh, it's shocking how interpretation has, has called them. So, yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And then that really, so when we say, well, just look at these examples, people, uh, women go to the Bible and start reading. And, and even those examples have been taken from us because of the poor exegesis mm. around them and the inability of the church to to recognize the goodness, the holiness, the rightness of the female body. And, and so that gets absorbed, I think, by, by women uh, into their own psyche. And uh, like you say, it, it can be a lifelong process and struggle to hear rightly from, uh, from the Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. I mentioned uh, conversion or the pointed towards that. And I know that's a new project that you've been working on the whole area of conversion. What are some of the things that um, that you have found especially interesting and exciting about that topic? Mm-hmm. It's a topic I've come to uh, through interaction with students and through interaction with the life of the church. I just find there are a lot of questions uh, about conversion, that it's something that that we need to talk about theologically. It'll probably be a little while before my book on this subject is out, but, uh, but it is in the works. Um, I think in a lot of contemporary U.S. Christian context, we've actually become embarrassed by conversion. Um, partly because we've done it so poorly, right? Because because we do have this history of um, manipulative um, or flat out coercive uh, attempts at conversion and the way that conversion has been associated with colonialism and, and empire. Um, and we should be embarrassed by, by the ways we've gotten that wrong. Um, but the answer is not to throw out conversion, which is 
inherent to it and central to the Christian faith. Um, so one of the main things I'm thinking about in the book uh, is how conversion uh, relates not or how, is about not coercion, but consent. Um, and so as I'm writing a theology of conversion, I'm also really writing a theology of consent and how it is that God works with us uh, and not outside of us uh, against us and how important that is for how we think about uh, the practices of evangelism and all of our practices as Christians. Um, this too, uh, the church tradition has often gotten from Mary, right? Uh, in the story of the Annunciation where Mary learns that she's gonna be the mother of Jesus um, and the angel tells her uh, this news, uh, Mary, uh, gives her consent, right? Uh, she chooses to work with God. And uh, that's fundamental in some really basic ways uh, to what it is to be Christian. Martin Luther says something like, I'm paraphrasing, um, how amazing it is uh, that God should make the gospel depend on the yes of this virgin, right? Um, and uh, it's fun to think about that stuff. So. Oh, yeah. And it, it's... Um... It is. It expands the imagination. Um, sometimes theology itself gets a bad name. And you have a fantastic book called Practicing Christian Doctrine that I think helps us understand why theology matters. I mean, our conversation today has really highlighted why theology matters in my daily life and the way that I think about myself and others uh, and the world. Um, practicing Christian Doctrine. What a, what a great way of thinking about theology and life. Uh, I know you've gotten great reviews from that, uh, from that book. What might be one of your favorite chapters in it or stories that you have in it that just kind of help uh, summarize the, why theology is so important hmm. for the average person, for the average Joe and Josephine? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a passion of mine to insist to all Christians that we are theologians and um, that the riches of theology are, are there for us. I really loved writing the creation chapter um, in that book, um, uh, where I thought about creation with the help of one of my favorite theologians, Julian of Norwich, uh, who uh, was a medieval uh, English uh, woman uh, and wrote the first book of theology by a woman in the English language uh, that we have at least. Um, uh, Julian insists uh, to us that when we think about creation, we have to remember uh, that God made it and that God loves it and that God has a plan for it. And she has this lovely, just very tender, sometimes described as homey way of thinking about that. Um, uh, which uh, I hope comes through in that chapter uh, in encouraging all of us to think about our life as creatures and our uh, life in creation uh, as a place that God made and God loves. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Beth. I loved our chat. We've covered a lot from vampires to creation to new creation and just about everything in between. So it was a busy <laughs> half hour, <laughs> but thank you so much. And I know we'll have more conversations to come. Fun to be with you. 
You've been listening to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We've left links to some of the books discussed in today's episode in the podcast description. And if you enjoyed this week's conversation, be sure to share it with a friend and hit subscribe so that you'll never miss another episode when we release them every Tuesday. We'll see you right back here next week for The Alabaster Jar.